from Hong Kong. This is Maya Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based upon the postmodern conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, for, or with startups. Today, we talk to Xenia Wong, a serial entrepreneur passionate about innovation while creating financial and social impact. She is currently the founder of JobDAO, an HR and fintech solution offering services from job search to payrolls stretching from employers to employees. Welcome, Xenia. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Great having you here. Xenia, can you tell me quickly, how did you came to be in startups? Sure. Um, my background is quite uh, traditional in a way, because I was trained, uh, I am a CFA, Charter Financial Analyst, so I was trained in finance. I worked in management consulting and um, along the way, and also like uh, working for some uh, product launches um, in financial services. But uh, my family is entrepreneurial, so I've always wanted to have my own business. So I started my first business on a part-time basis. Um, and then the second was a full-time and an, another one on part-time, even though I was like working for the banks. So it's, uh, it's I'm not new to the startup space. Uh, Jobdo is my fourth company. Um, but we have two products that are quite different. So I almost it's almost like two different companies. Okay. You indeed come from a financial background, consultancy yeah. background. Yeah. What made you decide, uh, because I see you worked for a Bain & Company, what made you decide to get into startups? Like, was there something missing in your life or you wanted to be more impactful or was consultancy not just something for you? I think it changed uh, throughout the year. So when I first started a company that was, uh, um, I mean, I, I've always known that I wanted to be an entrepreneur because uh, my family is uh, from an entrepreneurial background. I think I wanted to be able to create something that is useful. Um, I mean, I don't actually want to be famous, but I would like my product to be famous <laughs> if I can see somebody using it uh, or like use it as a verb. Uh, that I think that would be quite impactful. And then as I uh, was working in various, I started a few startups, uh, one of which, so that my first time, my first full-time startup was also a fintech um, platform. It's actually a platform to connect um, uh, investors to invest in the developing world. So uh, so it's kind of like... Um, if you know of, if you heard of Kiva, a, a platform that helps uh, connect micro entrepreneurs to individuals, so micro entrepreneurs in the developing world can have uh, funding um, to improve their life livelihood. Um, it was an inspiration from Dr. Yunus, who is a Nobel Peace for his works with the Grameen Bank. So with that, I discovered that entrepreneurship can also be impactful in, in addition to generate. So from there, there's also. Uh, other thoughts or motivation to doing startup, but in a way that is uh, that produces like a dual body. Okay. What What was it for you to pursue something with that impact with the microfinance and developing countries? Because it's also reflecting in what you're currently doing, right? Yeah, it's coming full circle. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, so when I created Job though, of course, like job creation on its own is. Uh, uh, it already creates some impact, um, but we were particularly uh, focused on jobs that were targeted at the blue collar when we started. And um, the blue collar segment is uh, very fragmented and they don't have the resources to always travel to interviews uh, or pay for the travel to interviews, if you may. 
and and they always uh, more eagerly looking for work to make ends. So with Jobdo, we were able. We actually got feedback from users that okay, they were actually already working two jobs or three jobs a day, but then they uh, were able to use Jobdo to find jobs much faster um, to supplement the income. And that was a, I, it was actually quite a shock to me, especially since we're in Hong Kong. Um, I already knew that Hong Kong has the highest Gini coefficient, so the biggest gap between the rich and the poor. But then it was uh, reflecting. Uh, like our work really show that's the case. So so um, so on that front, I, I I realized that okay, even in the job creation space, you can still create even more impact than just creating jobs, just like connecting people to jobs. And then with uh, our new products, uh, Coupe, uh, which is a product that enables workers to stream their pay, meaning that um, once if you pay normally at the end of the month, which means that you have 30 days of not having cash in your bank account. Um, so oftentimes, uh, a, a segment of people, of workers, will go out and uh, get fin- uh, external financing. So um, I discovered that to be the case in Hong Kong, uh, but also more so in developing world. And in developing world where there's no, um, not a, such a sufficient banking uh, system, 40% of uh, Southeast Asian population, for example, is unbanked. Um, our product enables them to get financial services without uh, being charged. Okay. And when you thought of starting up Jobdo, what was your initial hypothesis that you thought, like, hey, there is something out there, I have to start validating that, and let me start building that. What was the initial hypothesis there? The initial hypothesis was that, uh, so I also run a wine company, uh, and at that point, uh, when I was in the works of starting Jobdo, I saw that in the hospitality industry, where when people need um, to get some ha- some help for events, uh, catering, there's no um, a central place to do so. Uh, it's usually referrals, and then with referrals, is uh, often you actually don't. Uh, um, I start this. Okay, so yeah, so uh, so I would I I have a, I have a wine company. So uh, while I was starting. Uh, to consider whether there is um, a market need for job though, I saw that uh, in the um, hospitality or events industry, there a there is no way for to quickly connect people to these jobs that happen often in a very short time, uh, and it's not. I mean, it's they they gigs, they're not time engagement. Um, so there's no sufficient way to connect them, connect people to jobs. And I also know that uh, in the hospitality industry in Hong Kong specifically. Usually, hotels would employ what we call a, a snakehead. It's kind of the colloquial term. But it's basically a one-man agent to bring people into work. And um, that process is uh, inefficient and also sometimes can be biased. Um, so we wanted people to have more f- uh, fair opportunity to get uh, work up in the hospital quickly. You call it the snakehead? Is it because that one person comes in and has a long, a long tail of other staff behind that person and that at that point also gets hired? Or is it another metaphor? Oh, actually, it's a... <laughs> I mean, snakehead comes from smuggling <laughs> people, right? So uh, I suppose, yeah, because they... Uh, I mean, and I think this, this uh, mode of hiring has been around for at least 30, 40 years. Maybe thirty years now. Um, so um, that person is a gatekeeper to whether uh, uh, the workers can go to work. I mean, basically, they just once they know that oh, they need the hotel, the restaurant needs about ten headcount. They choose. Um, I've heard some horror story. I don't think it's so bad now, but I've heard some horror story. If you know, you need to 
make the snake head happy, get, be sure that you will get. Yeah, I heard similar stories for like restaurants indeed, where at that point uh, the chef has three or four waiting staff also behind him. And you can at that point hire the chef, but you also at that point have to hire the waiting staff. And then if at that point you as an owner of the restaurant you know, want to fire the, uh, the chef, also your waiting staff will go. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's pretty common. <laughs> okay. So you, you saw that. So that was your hypothesis. How did you start when you decided to do this? What was your first week looking at? You, you, you hired an office, bought a laptop and started coding or what was it? So I was lucky that I have, uh, I mean, not lucky, but I made a decision that if I were ever to start a tech company, I must have a tech co-founder. And so I had a really, really good CTO um, and who also liked to get his hand dirty. So because it's a platform where we're connecting employers with uh, candidates. So on the employer side, uh, we needed to make sure that they would use us. So uh, we drew up a... Um, a wireframe on PowerPoint on what the app would look like. And then I, uh, based on my connection as well as uh, some co-calling, I connected, uh, I met with 15 uh, events organizers uh, and restaurant owners or hotel uh, operators to look at our PowerPoint to see whether this is an app that they would uh, be interested in. So we basically let them use the app on the PowerPoint and see how it, they would navigate to get some feedback. Um, and then on the uh, user acquisition, so the workers acquisition side. So my CTO and I, we went to um, the government labor center and just um, stood outside and uh, did surveys. I think we did about 200 surveys. Um, it was half getting the uh, information, but half, of course, actually getting the first group of people on board because we got that contact. So when the app was ready, they were the first group of people. Who so it's kind of funny because um, my CTO, Eric, and I, uh, you're not supposed really to stand outside and give out flyers. So we got kicked out a few times. But we, and then we just stood outside the building of the, of the offices to continue giving out, doing surveys. Yeah, that's the hustle, right? Yeah. yeah. So good experience. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit more like how did you meet your CTO, Eric? Because quite often what you see is that people are business co-founders that are looking for technical co-founders and I quite often hear the question where do I find a technical person where do I find my technical co-founder so where did you get your technical co-founder so this was a chapter was created because of uh, Google actually in a way because Google and Chinese University of Hong Kong had a program uh, had a competition called the empowering young entrepreneur uh, yeah EYE uh, competition. So um, the idea is that you have to come up with business idea and then you pitch and then if you win, you get a trip to the Silicon Valley. So long story short is that I met Eric in uh, the program and then we actually won and then uh, we went to Silicon Valley for a week. Just curious, you met that person in a program, you didn't know him. How did you arrange the agreements am amongst you? Like, or did you just start and started coding and assuming everybody would get like 50-50 or did you have like a co-founder agreement or what was your mode of operandus there? Yeah, so I didn't mention there were actually three of us. Um, that, so that we had also a uh, another person responsible for design. So the three of us did talk about um, what the uh, shares and the vesting schedule would be. But we did not put anything on paper. And that was the biggest mistake I've ever made. Um, when we won, actually, no, what, before we won the competition, we already uh, we got Hong Kong Cyberport's um, 
uh, we also got admitted to Hong Kong Cyber Force um, Micro Fund. So we got some money. So from there, we decided, okay, it's time to set up a company. So we went to, uh, we registered our company in Hong Kong. Um, we're, in, we're in Hong Kong. When you do so, you actually have to issue share capital. Um, so officially giving our shares to a founder. But if you um, go with the, the vesting schedule, uh, then um, you're not supposed, there's, a, there's a, a period before you can actually, you actually get vested and then you need to basically for three to, or four years before you get all your shares, uh, even if, as founders. Um, so we discussed the uh, vesting schedule uh, and uh, uh, how we should split the company, um, but we didn't put that in paper, which means that the only legal documents would be what we registered in Hong Kong government. So later on, we had some founders dispute. And that almost caused us to close the company because, uh, um, because even though at that point no one was supposed to own any shares because we have not we have not passed a cliff period um, on on paper we already split the company so so yeah so I would advise to put some sort of co-founders agreements down early on. How did that? If you can talk about it, how, how did that resolve? Didn't it resolve, or is still something that goes on? Or? So eventually, um, the person we had issue with left and went to start uh, a competing path. So because of that, we were able to get out. Okay, that's not a comfortable position to be in at that point, of course. No. <laughs> did you reach out to mentors, advisors, lawyers, family, f- friends? How did you resolve that dispute for you internally? Like, what was the first thing when there was signs of this is not going well? What was one of the first thing that you did? Um, we, so I mean, I think if the the first issue we had was more performance driven. So we tried to be. Uh, we actually, I. I I actually tried to see whether there are other roles in the company that would be more suitable for the, the third co-founder. Um, but then we, after like a couple of changes, we went away for it. So that's how we started the discussion. Um, you know, maybe we need another C-level person. So this is how, how things started. Uh, sour. We discussed, okay, well, actually, the company has been rigid, split the company. So I own this. Um, but eventually to get um, to get the negotiation on getting the shares back, uh, because the other person has started a competing platform, uh, uh, there was a mentor involved whom we known. Of course, I can and indeed that, especially when it comes to the legal structure that you have, uh, the shares, the company secretary, you have that person sign some documents to basically give up uh, that person's equity. I can understand that. How did that communication go? Purely to mail or was that posting or did you meet up with the person to have them signed or? Oh, no, we didn't. Uh... Don't think we've yes yeah, yeah no uh, it was it was done via the help of that mentor and so all, everything basically like a trusted third party in in between that yeah. was mediating yeah okay. okay so right after that you made a co-founder agreement with your technical co-founder right yeah yeah and also at the same time we got uh, an investor interested in us. we need to put all the governance in play okay and um, just I, I don't know if that public knowledge but. Was it like a 50-50 deal or was it... Um... No, I mean, I have a, I have a majority of the shares. Okay. And the reason for that is... Because he decided to take a, a salary, like a market salary. Mm-hmm. So that's why. Okay. So the working arrangement. Which is fair. Yeah. Uh, uh, quite often, you cannot have it both. <laughs> it will be great if you can have. Yeah. But, um, how were you able to get that first investor in? Uh, also because of... Uh, 
the programs with uh, from Hong Kong universities. I mean, this is actually from the Polytechnic University of Hong Kong. We we went to participate in pitching. Um, but actually, before the founder dispute, we actually had four investors interested because uh, our early numbers were quite good. Um, then the dispute actually hurt the tr- so the the uh, investor interest dropped. But then because of we're able to get it. Okay, just for me and for the listeners, that dispute. What was the time frame? Was it like a week or months? No, it lasted five months. Five months. Yeah. Okay. So after that, all was settled, done, uh, renewed energy, renewed focus, working on it. What was at that point your your initial action that you did after the dispute was over? What was the first thing you you started working on? Uh, fundraising is a big one. Um, because I think there was a three-month gap before we actually got in. We were talking uh, for so fundraising, but of course, like getting the numbers to get the traction back on track. When you had at that point that investor, what? How was your team looking like? Was it just you and your co-founder, or yeah. was there other staff? Uh, we had interns, but no. Okay. After the investment, you started hiring, or what was the team's uh, uh, dynamics look like? After investments, yes, we had. Uh, I think we had two other staff. And was that because there was a, was it a skill set uh, lack or was that just the amount of work that there was to make your deadlines and your KPIs? Or It was mostly focused on user acquisition. So um, yeah, we just need to. Okay. So yeah, business development. Oh, but we also had, um, actually within four months we had, one. so there were two tech people. At that point, you were still having that hypothesis of, Temporarily staff, event staff. Yeah, we were. Um, I think one mistake was we went too fast to other industries. I think what we should have done was to stay, uh, to stay really focused on two or three industries and just to be the leader in those. Um, which might or might not be good. Um, I mean, right now COVID killed basically hospitality, F&B industry. So if we pick that, then we would have basically no business. But I think if like maybe two industries or maximum three industries would have been kind of hatching against each other would have made sense. But at that uh, when uh, when we got the investors funding, the investor was leaning to for us to be a uh, mass market type of uh, uh, mar- marketplace. So he urged us to expand quickly. In- was it in hindsight, did his investment enough to go into that mass market or? No. I, I don't think so. Um, I think that it was enough money to be really good at about like maybe three verticals. Um, because actually it is a B2B2C business because the, I mean, our customers come from the corporates uh, or SMEs, but so companies, but our users are individuals. And if you look at um, the job markets, uh, like JobDB, other competitors, they are still spending a lot of money advertising like to keep you onboarded or aware of the platform. So there's a lot of marketing burn, which we didn't have. And it was not in, I mean, I wasn't planning to spend money on marketing because that's, it's not, uh, it doesn't, didn't generate the ROI then, that. So I think, um, uh, actually then, which in a way kind of, induce us to think about okay what are the other added value services we can create uh once you are in that industry or once you the come sign up this is also kind of kind of i think it paved the the path for our fintech products because we were thinking okay how, once we have these workers or employers what can we do more instead of say let's say different industry but then how did you identify that additional service was that because you were interviewing people or was it just something that people potential clients were asking from you or how did you see that need? Uh, 
So we always got asked if uh, there are jobs that would be paid daily or ca- in cash. Um, and we did some experiments on our platform. We posted the same job, exactly the same working condition, uh, description, location, etc. Except that the pay is different and the payment uh, frequency. So we found that 30% of our user base, um, and we had about uh, 150,000 workers signed up at that point. Uh, so we discovered that 30% of user base would be willing to choose the job with lower pay, but it's quicker be paid, like, to be paid within 24. And then we tried that in... And around the same time, I, we opened an office in Southeast Asia um, because of some relationship we got in touch with the Ministry of Education. Um, so we saw that there's... Actually, there's a bigger demand in the developing world for what we... And we just discovered that the behavior is about 80%. We want to be much quicker in order to... And why do you think that is that way? Is that culture? Is that developing countries specific? Why do you think it is that way that in more developed regions, people are okay with like bi-weekly pay or monthly pay and developing countries not? Um, I think for... Okay, if we look at developed versus developing, so developing countries, as I said, I mentioned earlier, they don't have a comprehensive banking system. So their source of financing is from usually loan shark. And uh, I've heard that uh, some of the workers would uh, be charged 20% for 20 days. So it's, it's quite expensive to get uh, financing. And also we've identified that between 18 to 29 is the segment where they would often need more cash. I guess like the they don't make enough. So they living... If loan sharks are charging 20%, that might be an interesting uh, business to go into and charge uh, money for that. But I yeah. understand that that's... We charge about 2 to 3%. So. <laughs> so you said you're now looking into the Southeast Asian market. Can you tell me a little bit more about how did you discover that? Because it's not relatively obvious that uh, in the countries that you are right now, that there would be a, a need for that. It's not that you just take a flight, go somewhere and start uh, doing customer development. Yeah, I mean, I our first market is uh, Myanmar. So we already have a team there. My next market is the Philippines. We've got some potential customers interested uh, and also potential bank to partner with us. And the reason why I picked um, these countries is uh, number one, kind of the top-down stats, right? I mean, Myanmar is, uh, has 56 million people. Uh, the Philippines has 110 million people. So the population-wise is much bigger. Um, but then you also look at the unsecured consumer lending uh, industry, uh, which is huge. Um, and uh, they're underserved. So like in Myanmar, for example, very, very few unsecure lending products. Um, the banking system is just starting to, be, to revive. Um, most of the lending is done based on collateral. But there's not much collateral, I mean, for the young people. Uh, and then if you look at also kind of SME uh, financing gap, uh, Philippines, for example, has the high gap. And Myanmar, again, because the banking system is not, is not established, uh, most of the SMEs should get funds, so they have to. Um, and then when I actually visited these countries, um, usually we have uh, partners, potential partners on the ground or people who are pretty influential in the country. So we, we're lucky. So in Myanmar right now, uh, if you go to the Ministry of Education uh, homepage, you will find our job portal to be used by students. And that's uh, uh, I, that was not, that didn't come from a connection. That was... Basically, I attended a, uh, a conference and 
and I went to talk to the office. And very quickly, actually, we got set up. In the Obviously, now with this COVID situation, what and you're looking into expanding into Philippines, also not able to travel into the Philippines. How are you solving that? Well, our expansion plan for Philippines has been is on hold. Um, we are hoping Q4. But Q4 is right, so so we'll see. Um, but uh, for Myanmar, because I still have a team there, and um, uh, we actually just got a new line of financing. So we actually are identifying sectors that are still growing because of COVID or in spite of COVID and being a bit uh, helping them. Okay. Uh, okay. So you're working on that, of course, but also at that point waiting for the travel ban to be lifted to the Philippines to actually at that point execute there. Does that mean that you already have the plan fully written out and ready or are there still things to do for you to make it actually work? Um, we have a couple of uh, customers interested. Um, so we were just testing and then uh, changed the plan. Now, in hindsight, beside of the co-founder issue, what would you say is probably one of the biggest issues that you had to overcome uh, during that five-year period? Um, I think, like I said, when... Uh, I mean, even though we were initially trying to be really focused on the... I think what we should have done was to really stay in those industries and just develop more value add instead of thinking okay we have this industry uh pretty down packs so let's try to expand. so i think basically try to get more out of if you may or service more of your existing acquired clients or use is would be um perhaps a smarter uh, uh strategy okay. and always balancing i mean for any marketplace balancing supply and demand is always the and the story, especially when you're a platform like supply and demand side of course Looking at that, is that would you now say in, in hindsight that's because you were pushed to go in there or it was because of your maybe at that point not being strong enough to uh, push against it or lack of knowledge? No, I think it's a combination. Uh, I mean, of course, we were advised to do so. Um, but of course, we are also, I mean, of course, but we were actually also really well covered in the press. Like we were on major television and uh, major newspapers. We've never actually paid for any, but we were uh, we had a lot of media. And when that comes, people will come and uh, post. Uh, I mean, we come to use our platform from different. In- so I think that um, I mean, I still don't like me because those are they they become edge cases, right? So let's say it's an industry that we've never recruited people to be there. Um, if you only get a couple of demands, you probably want to just drop it. So you say no to them. Uh, but if you see a lot more coming, then you try to satisfy that those. In- but I think what we did was, okay, whatever jobs come in, we'll just try to um, satisfy the, the, the posting, um, like find people for those posts. Then that takes away the energy to really focus. So I think it's also partly, you know, driven by kind of doing, but not being able to say no to uh, okay. edge cases. What's next for you? Our fintech product is still quite new. It was just launched last uh, September, October, uh, and it's been doing quite okay during COVID. So we're gonna focus on that. We're combining the Jobdo platform with the this salary platform in two into one. So it's still uh, product development, getting more users for the finance, which will help us actually get job portal as well. And how does the team look like right now? Uh, we have also about eight people uh, in uh, uh, Myanmar, okay. Malaysia, mm-hmm. and Hong. Kong. Just in general, is there any startup advice or advice in general that you often hear going around but you actually don't agree with? Hmm, this is an interesting one. Um, there's one that I am 
still thinking about myself because I used to say that myself. I think that oh, you need to be really passionate、uh, about something to create a startup or doing anything.、Um, and then later on, I heard that it's not passion; it's purpose.、Um, so I,、uh, I still believe. Like I, I am, I am generally a very passionate person about things that I do. But I do agree that passion can can be burnt out. But if you actually feel what you're doing is purposeful, it helps you get through the tough time even even more, even better. So I think、um, I think it's important to have both passion and purpose. Maybe passion is what gets you into the game,、um, but purpose is what. Helps you last and stay in the even for, through the ups and downs. So, so that's something that I've been kind of thinking about. I usually end this podcast with go out and build something meaningful that indeed also surpasses the passion part and it's more indeed in the purpose sector. But okay, that's that's a great viewpoint. Beside that, what is advice that you at one point were given, you received, and that you still agree with or use on a daily basis? I don't know if it's some is an advice I got, but、um, I think from running a few startups, I've come to realize that running a business or being an entrepreneur is it's a lot about fighting your own. So when things don't go well, it's easy to blame it, consider yourself myself incompetence or whatever was wrong with me. How come? So I think there's a lot of negative thoughts. It's easy to have negative thoughts、uh, when you're running a business, and it's not easy to share with others because most of the time they don't understand, they don't know as an entrepreneur. So I think um, um, what's I would continue to advise is、uh, don't go in negative mode or try not to.、Uh, if you do, maybe take a day off to think about nothing, because <laughs> it will help you. It's a it's a marathon. It's a you know long long term game, so it will help you last. Yeah, for me, it's mostly indeed also that I say create an environment around you for people that understand you, that are supportive but also critical、uh, for you. And that are honest, and that can help you. Be it investors, be it staff, be it co-founders, be it family, friends, and people that you can go to when you're, yeah, having a question. Then at that point, that support of that group around you is, I think, indeed very important. Or go drinking with Jeff. <laughs> or or <laughs> or drinking with me. We're we're actually drinking right now while we're、uh, recording this podcast. But if there's anything. From this talk, you want people to to take away from what would it be? What what's the one thing that you really want to drive home for、uh, for people who are listening? I'd say because we are in COVID, this is a Black Swan event where many things are disrupted and jobs are lost, and generally people are not in a great mood. Try still to look on the bright side.、Uh, our fintech product, our our job product was hit. Definitely because of COVID, but our fintech product has done quite decent of COVID. So whenever there is a、um, crisis, there is opportunity. So I always think that you know, always try to stay if the outside environment so so dim. Don't lose hope. That's a great one. Okay,、um, thank you very much for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. No problem. Thank you. For the listeners, although the rating system of a podcast is hideous. If you like this Maya Kupa series, you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers. We want to thank Mizuho Crowdbrain Hong Kong for being the venue sponsor of this episode, and thank you for Copy Ventures for making this series possible. If you have any suggestions on guests that you want to hear on this podcast, let us know. Tweet to us, email us, reach out to us. We were always listening. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful.